Okay, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Um, in October of 2002, there was a dazed crew of a Japanese trawler uh, was plucked out of the Sea of Japan, clinging to the wreckage of their sunken ship. Uh, their rescue, however, quickly turned to their imprisonment. And those of you that are quick, why did their rescue turn to an imprisonment? Because I'm going to tell you, and here's why. Uh, because when the authorities questioned them about, man, what, how did your ship sink? What happened? There wasn't a storm within miles. There's no rocks out here. It just all of a sudden sank. And this is what each man on that sunken vessel claimed to a man. They said that a cow had fallen out of the clear blue sky and had hit them dead center in the middle of the ship, cracking the hole, splitting the ship in two, and sinking it in a matter of moments. That's why they were imprisoned. Because the authorities thought anyone that could come up with a story like that is definitely, certainly up to something no good and bad and nasty, right? Well, the cow, the cow sailors, as they were called, were imprisoned for several weeks uh, until Russian authorities reluctantly released some information to the uh, Japanese authorities, and this is what they said. They said, apparently, one of our cargo planes... Um, in a Siberian airstrip, uh, at the end of the runway, there was a cow there, and, and this crew and this cargo plane decided to kidnap the cow. And so they forced the cow into the cargo's hold, and they took off for home. Now, uh, the cow, on the other hand, did not like his new surroundings. And so he went into a rampage in the plane, a 1,000-pound rampage. So... Uh, in a plane not built to carry live cargo, especially 1,000-pound live rampaging cargo, and now fearing for their very lives and the crash of their ship, they do what, what all of us would have done. They had no choice. They had to push the cow out of the airplane at 30,000 feet while they were flying over the sea of Japan. I mean, this story is beyond unbelievable. I mean, it, it doesn't even get anywhere near, it's nowhere near normal. I mean, I, I still, when I, I've told this once before and when I read it for this week and said, yeah, I'm going to use it this week, I, I keep thinking of the Japanese officials' faces when those sailors said, um, yeah, a cow um, came from the sky. Right? I mean, come on. Uh, this is exactly what Mark wants you to feel about this passage. He wants you to be absolutely amazed, like this is nowhere near normal. It's beyond, beyond belief, right? Now, he not only wants us to, us to feel that way, he, he wants us to certainly be caught up uh, with a passion or a feeling that this is amazing, that this passage is absolutely amazing. But what he really wants is for that amazement to travel down deep into your bones, to travel down deep into your bones in such a way that it captures your imagination. Now, the imagination is just that faculty or that part of the human heart that does all the seeing and all the savoring in your life. It's that part or that faculty in the human heart that has 3D vision and 3D desiring. 
And what Mark wants is that amazement to travel down and capture imagination so much that it, it reaches and restructures the very center of your being. And when it reaches and restructures the very center of your being, waves of impact explode like a tsunami, a continuous tsunami into every area of your life. That's what Mark's after. No small goal. So welcome to Mark's masterpiece of amazement. (laughs) And he paints the portrait in two scenes. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. Scene one, he went out again beside the sea, remember place, and all the crowd, remember what the crowd means, was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Scene two, and as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his, Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I added the do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you again that the, uh, the action, uh, the energy, the power uh, in real Christianity is not upward, uh, it's not inward, uh, but it's downward. So we ask now that you would uh, fill us uh, with the downward power of your spirit. Uh, would you open our eyes and open our hearts? Uh, we ask this uh, for your glory, for your sake of your grace and your love and your mercy for Jesus. And we ask this for the good of your people. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, what's the amazement? What's the shock and awe in this passage? Let's look at scene one, 13 and 14. Again, he went out beside, he, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. Now this is probably Matthew. Uh, so this is the first writer of the gospels, Matthew. Um, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. Now the crowd, remember the crowd. There are two places con- uh, put side by side here in the setting, the crowd and then private home setting. We looked at that last week. The crowd is all around Jesus again. So there's a sea of humanity all around Jesus. There are hundreds of faces looking at Jesus and thousands of personal human dramas behind those faces looking at Jesus, right? And Jesus is walking around and he singles out one particular set of eyes, one particular face, one personal drama, and he says to him, follow me, right? And he does. Now, follow Jesus is used throughout all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it only means one thing. Every time that word is used, the context or the meaning is Real Christianity is happening. Um, real faith is being seen on the spot. Uh, remember, the crowds, they kind of embody not a real faith, but they embody a kind of a spectator uh, observing interest that never uh, closes in true faith or real discipleship. Um, but 
follow me indicates that there is a union that happens, uh, an association, identification that happens deeply with Jesus. It's synonymous with real faith, okay? So Jesus says, follow me to Levi, and he does. Now, what we need to see, but we don't see now, but I'm going to tell you, this is the cow being pushed out of the cargo plane at 30,000 feet right now. And we're all saying, I don't see it. What's so amazing about this? Where is that? And the answer is, Levi is a tax collector. Tax collectors were contract laborers in the Roman government. So a a tax collector would make a bid to work in a certain area. And obviously, just like it works today, probably the lowest bid wins, right? So a tax collector will bid to work in a certain area, and he becomes the tax collector in that area. And he now works for Rome. And what he does, though, is he has to charge the Roman tax rate. It's a Roman rate. He has to give that back to Rome. So the way he makes his living and the way he makes his profit is by going above the tax rate, the Roman rate. Now, Rome did not care how above or how beyond a tax collector went. It made no difference to them. All they wanted is, here's the Roman rate. Give us the Roman rate. So they do, right? So you can see how this is an explosive mixture of money and greed. It's easy to see. Now, Levi was not just a tax collector. He was a Jewish tax collector. And he worked for Rome. He worked for Israel's arch enemy. He worked for the personification of Gentile domination and oppression. What every Israelite was waiting for a David-like king to overthrow. And here's the really nasty part. Levi took money from fellow Jews, his own people, for Rome and for his own pocket. So Levi profited by oppressing his own people. Uh, In the notorious Jewish death camp called Auschwitz during World War II, the Nazis formed a group called the Sadr Commandos, and that just means um, special unit or special work group. There's no no special name there in German. Uh, They were a special work group that was made up of Jewish men and women, and here was their job. Their job was to uh, be there when the arriving trains uh, of cattled humanity would arrive into Auschwitz. And their job was to go up and, with a warm greeting, welcome those that were coming off the train and welcome them and tell them, look, you're going to take a shower to get cleaned up before you go to work. And then they would lead them, lead them, and it came off the trains into the showers. And now those of us that know now, those showers were what? They were gas chambers. So the Sadr commanders were responsible. Jewish men and women participated in leading millions to their murder in gas chambers. The Sadr commanders got better clothing, they got better food, they got better living accommodations than anyone else in the camp. Uh, Survivors of the Holocaust hate them, call them traitors, collaborators, and much worse names. A guy named... uh, Primo Levi, who was a Jewish writer, said uh, their testimony, a Sadr commander's testimony about what they did and didn't do and what happened in those times is, how does he say it, shouldn't be given much credence to. He says, quote, since they had much to atone for and would naturally attempt to rehabilitate themselves at the expense of the truth. Levi 
was the ancient Near East equivalent of a solder commando in the eyes of his people. Now the Mishnah in the Talmud, remember we're kind of learning some new things here. The Mishnah is a Jewish commentary on the law, and the Talmud is a collection of the, the uh, popular expert authors and their writings on the law that was accumulated between 200 and 500 AD. So we got the Mishnah and you got the Talmud. Uh, here's what they say about Jewish uh, tax collectors. They're disqualified to be a witness in court. They can't be. They're excommunicated uh, from the synagogue, kicked out. Uh, they are a, a source of great shame for their family. Uh, they also recorded that any touch of a tax collector made that person's whole house unclean. So if you touch the tax collector, not only your person, but everyone in your family is unclean, and the, the physical dwelling itself is ceremonially unclean. It also recorded that Jews were forbidden to receive money or alms. That means benevolence from tax collectors because their money was seen to be gained by thievery. So even if a tax collector was to have, quote, compassion on somebody and was to give them benevolence, uh, the law in that day says you are not to take it or accept it. Uh, lying to tax collectors, according to the mission in the Talmud, was permitted, even encouraged. Levi was hated. Levi was an outcast. Levi was a lawbreaker. Levi wasn't even a true Israelite. He was even lower than the despicable Gentile Romans. Levi was not even a real human being in the eyes of his own people. Now, did you notice where Levi worked his tax booth? Look at your text. Here's the Sea of Galilee. It looks like a harp. At the top is Capernaum. He worked his tax booth just outside of Capernaum. Now, that meant that all the fish that came out of the northern region of the Sea of Galilee, he was the tax collector for before it was sold into the city and went on into the rest of the empire. And we know that the, the major uh, mode of business and commerce in that area was the fishing industry. So he's making a buck, a big buck. But not only that, do you remember or do you recall where the first four disciples who were fishermen, where they fished? Capernaum, Northern Sea of Galilee. So Andrew and Peter, James and John, knew Levi by name and hated him. And so begins Jesus' illustrious 12-man team, right? This is amazing. So the amazement in this passage is this. As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi sitting at his tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus accepts the unacceptable. Jesus accepts the unacceptable. 
Scene 2, verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in Levi's house, many of the tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the picture you've got to get here, what Mark's trying to portray, this is certainly Levi's house, but the, the host of the party is not Levi. The host of the party is Jesus. He's the one that started the party. He's the one that created the party. And the way a party's happened in those days, they didn't have chairs, so they did recline. So this is a really close proximity of community you are leaning literally into one another and and reaching over and grabbing the different plates of food from one another and you're having face-to-face touching conversations and and intimate ways of communicating and it's all happening and laughing and communing in this scene and and look who's there the tax collectors plural now they're they're coming out of the woodwork and they're going to Jesus' party. And then just in case we miss it too, there's another cultural word that's sent in there that we kind of relate to, but we're going to understand a little bit more. Sinners. And notice what it says at the end of verse 15. For there were many who followed him. One of the amazing things about this passage for me, when Jesus has this banquet with the bad, what, what amazes me is this. The bad people want to be there. They want to be with Jesus. They're attracted to him. They're drawn to him. So hold that thought. All right, if you want to understand what the word sinner means in verse 15, we've got to go back to the Mishnah, and we've got to go to the Talmud and the Psalms. Now, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, to be a sinner was to be, here's, here's their list, if you look it up. Uh, gamblers. Poor Jim Tandy. Texas hold him and fold him. He's done. Moneylenders, I want you to think of mafia. All right, I want you to think of black market, possibly a pawn shop or two. Uh, thieves, the violent, every sort of criminal. Tax collectors are in this list. People who have same-sex attractions and interests and desires are in this list. Culturally, we call that today what? We call that homosexuality, lesbianism. They're on this list. People who traded on the Sabbath. In other words, if you engaged in business, if you worked on the Sabbath, you were put on this list. <laughs> uh, shepherds are on this list. Who were the first people that Jesus, that got to see Jesus? Who were the very first preachers? Shepherds. And then lastly on this list is anyone who is, quote, too busy or too ignorant to live up to the law's demands or rules. Now, the Psalms, when they identified people as sinners, they called them the wicked. And when the Psalms talked about the wicked or a sinner, it's not your garden variety normal sinner that they're talking about, the one that occasionally breaks the law here and there. When the Psalms talked about the wicked, it was a, a people, a person that stood outside and apart from God's law. In other words, their blood, what coursed through their blood was law-breaking. Their DNA was law-breaking. In other words, they were... Uh, God rejectors and God avoiders as a way of life. Okay? Now, uh, Mark scholar James Edwards says, those that are identified as sinners in this passage are categorically reprobate. And these are the people at the party. These are the people that are attracted to Jesus. These are the people that want to be there. These are the people going to church. These are the people that are drawn to him. 
That's amazing. I'm going to strike while the iron's hot, and then we'll come back to this in a second. Um, Do sinners want to hang out with you? With me? If not, why not? Do you want to hang out with sinners? If not, why not? Because whatever's going on here, this much we do know, real Christianity involves a lot of hanging out with messed up people. And if we don't want to, or we, we have a hard time doing it, why do we not want to do it? Is it this reason? I just try to pick two reasons I think that keeps us, and I start thinking through me personally, keeps me, or would keep me, uh, hanging out with sinners, or used to. I should say this did in one day, it doesn't today at all. If you were to hang out with sinners, do you think it would compromise your witness? That's what I was told when I grew up in the church my whole life. Now, if you do that, it'll compromise your witness. To that day, then, as now, I've wondered, what does that really mean? And who made that up anyway? Compromise who witness? Whose witness? Other Christians' witness? Then compromise it. If we're compromising another Christian's witness, their witness, we compromise it by hanging out with, quote, messed up people. They need to be compromised. Because that's, a, that's an engagement of the fear of man, and that's an engagement of self-righteousness, being controlled by self-righteous people. I say compromise it. Um, if this is true, that we compromise our witness by hanging out with messed up people, Jesus' witness was ruined. Especially when he hung out with me. If you were to hang out with sinners, do you think you'd become contaminated in some way? I think we do this. I know I've done this, I think so, in some way. Um, My family and my kids. If we were to hang out or my kids were to hang out with messed up people, somehow they're going to get stained and somehow they're going to get contaminated in some way, right? That's the thinking. Now, Jesus says it this way. He says, you know, it's not what's out there that contaminates you. It's not what's out there that comes in and stains you. It's what's in there, in our hearts that does. So here's the point. He says, so if somehow you're interacting with people and they happen to be messed up people or you're interacting with uh, nice people, whatever happens, but you start seeing effects on you and you start seeing stuff come out of you, his point is it's coming out of you because it's already there and it's always been there. And what God is doing is a gracious way of of helping us along and growing is he's actually using situations and circumstances to reveal what's always been there in your life. That's normal living. That's normal life. All right. So sinners wanting to be with Jesus is not expected in this text, is it? Who's expected to want to be with Jesus? Who would we think in this passage wants to be drawn or seeking God and Jesus? Who? The good people. Who are the good people? Uh, In that day, they were the religious leaders. These are Bible-believing people. These are praying people. These are fasting people. These are tithing and giving beyond people. These are people that were committed to spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. 
Uh, these are people that, that uh, kept the law to a T. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, the good people in those days, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The religious leaders uh, were not attracted and committed and drawn to Jesus. They were attracted and committed and drawn to their own worthiness, their own goodness. How do we know? Because Jesus does the interpretation for us. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard what they said, verse 16, he said to them, those who are well or the worthy have no need of a physician, but those who are sick or the unworthy do. I came not to call the righteous or the worthy, but I came to call sinners or the unworthy. All right, the New York Times called him the uh, C.S. Lewis of our generation. He has written a blockbuster bestseller in the Christian world that has literally turned the Christian world upside down in some places. His name is Tim Keller. He wrote a book called Prodigal God. In Prodigal God, he challenges, he makes a plea for the church to evaluate itself authentically, evaluate itself in terms of are we authentic real Christian churches. And this is how he does it. He says it this way. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. We tend to draw the conservative, the button-down moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. Is everybody uncomfortable? I am. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, or in this case, the sinners, the tax collectors, the messed up people, they must be full of, more full of older brothers than we'd like to think. Possibly the greater amazement in this passage is not that the messed up people are attracted to Jesus, but the good people are not. That's amazing. So why do messed up people or unworthy people or sick people or unrighteous people, according to this passage, why do they want to be with Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, again, that seems like the last people, the last people that want to go to church. The last people that want to be involved with God, the last people that would be attracted or drawn to Jesus would be the messed up people. Here's the answer. Because Jesus accepts the unacceptable. We also could see it this way because of the word sick and physician, he says in there, because Jesus heals the sick. And then we also could say it this way because he uses the word righteous and starts using religious terminology because Jesus because Jesus justifies the unworthy. We also could say, because this is a party, and this is Jesus at the center of the party, and he's inviting all these folks into the party, we could say Jesus welcomes, welcomes the messed up. This is phenomenal. <laughs> this is absolutely phenomenal. Jesus accepts the unacceptable. James Edwards, he wrote, he's the Mark scholar. I told you all if you want one commentary to get by his. 
He says, but what exactly was it about Jesus' association with such people that offended them? Did Jesus eat with sinners on the condition that they changed their lives? All right. How you answer that question will set the direction of your life. How you and we as a church answer that, cor- that question will set the direction of this church. So let's be careful how we answer it. Let's hear him again. Did Jesus eat with sinners on the condition that they changed their lives? Was his association with tax collectors, prostitutes, and the reprobate predicated on their forsaking their wickedness and becoming godly persons? If that were his intention, we might expect that the religious leaders would applaud him always and everywhere because that's what they were about. Their opposition is the more explainable on the ground that reform was not the fundamental assumption of Jesus' ministry. The scandal of the story is that Jesus did not make more repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors, sinners, messed up people. And he goes on to say, if they forsake their evil and amend their lives, they do so, not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because they already have it, end quote. Jesus accepts the unacceptable. Eating with someone in the ancient Near East was just, was equivalent to saying, you're my friend. I welcome you. I accept you. I associate with you. I identify with you. When Jesus' acceptance becomes real to us, you change. You'll want to follow him. You're drawn to him. You're attracted to him. And therein lies the secret of the whole passage. When his acceptance gets bigger, better, and brighter to you, you'll want to be there. So if we want to know the secret that unlocks the door to our hesitancy and our, our holding back and following Jesus and our lack of desire to be with him, you know what the biggest roadblock according to this passage is? Believing we're worthy. Or trying to be so. And the moment we get we're not and that he accepts the unacceptable you start following. You want to be at the party. <laughs> You're free. Your chains are off, as we just say. All right. So Mark's masterpiece of amazement in two scenes is Jesus accepts the unacceptable. That's the amazement. That's the masterpiece. That's the cow that sinks the ship. All right? Now, some of us this morning feel unacceptable right now, and you know who you are. You feel unacceptable. You still feel the sting of someone's rejection, and it's strong. You still feel the sting of not measuring up as a mom or a wife or a husband or a father or a son or a daughter or being a likable person or being a good student or an athlete or whatever it is. You still feel the sting and the shame of not measuring up. You possibly feel unacceptable because you still feel the shame of some stubborn or specific sin that hounds you. Jesus accepts the unacceptable. You get the second part of that. That's good news. 
Jesus accepts. You're not getting right now, but you're getting the unacceptable part. So you feel the unacceptable part. So now what we need to do is move on to the first part of that and believe it. And what we need to do is maybe you need to say it out loud or maybe you need to say to a friend, can you say this to me? I need to hear this. Can we say it together? Jesus accepts me. The unacceptable. And when that acceptance gets into your blood and into your bones, watch your shame leave. And watch energy and life and freedom and change occur. Some of you are nervous right now because you're going, okay, where's the life change in this passage? Uh, People have to stop sinning, right, Pastor? I mean, we have to stop sinning, right? I mean, we're called to be holy. I mean, we've got to stop our materialism and we got to stop sleeping around and we got to stop same-sex interests and same-sex desires and we got to stop our laziness and our irresponsibility and our lack of work ethic we got to stop this stuff we got to we got to stop the falling apart marriages and the falling apart families we've got to stop the lack of attention that's going on uh, to spiritual formation and spiritual matters and what does the pastor say i say yeah it does it does say that That needs to happen. Those things do need to stop. Uh, But so does stop. Stop trying to be worthy. Stop trying to save yourself by being acceptable. Stop trying to find your acceptance in materialism and in sex and in same-sex interests and desires. And in being lazy. It also means we need to stop not hanging out with messed up people. (laughs) What about that one? Why don't we get that one? It means we need to stop being so relationally unattractive and ugly. And unkind. And superior. And condescending. And better than. It means we need to stop being so isolated and disengaged from real people, messed up people, people like you, people like me, right? It also means we need to stop loving and accepting others based on their worthiness. You don't wait till someone meets our standards and doesn't meet our standards, whether we accept them or reject them or not. The call for the Christian is to always accept and love. Now, we'll talk about how do you do that with messed up stuff, same way Jesus does. And we'll unfold that as this book goes on. Now, there's a question that's going on here, and I I hinted at it earlier, about life change that's tucked away in our nervousness. Because deep in our nervousness, when we look at a passage like this, saying, well, shouldn't we be holy? Well, don't we need to stop this stuff? There's this question of what does real life change look like? Um, What... Uh, how does real life change come about? Here's the answer. According to this passage, it's very profound. Real life change comes about when Jesus' acceptance replaces all others you're looking for. You change. When Jesus' acceptance replaces your self-acceptance, your self-approval, your self-worthiness, your self-righteousness, you change. When Jesus' acceptance moves in and captures your imagination and 
and replaces the acceptance and the approval of others, you change. When Jesus' acceptance comes in and and hits and replaces the acceptance of intoxication and the acceptance of same-sex desires and same-sex interests and attractions, you change. Real change only comes about because you're loved and accepted. You will never change in order to get love and acceptance. You'll just rearrange the ship. So this is very, very profound. Being filled with Jesus' acceptance is the only thing that changes your life. Being filled, we could say again, with the gospel is the only thing that changes your life. We're looking at one sliver of splendor of one angle of the diamond. Look how loaded it is. Okay. All right, last application. Because Jesus accepts the unacceptable, hang out with the unacceptable. Make friends with the unacceptable. I mean, that's the easy application. I got that one real quick, right? That's easy to see because what's being contrasted here are two missions in life. You got the religious mission or the religious leader's mission. You got Jesus's mission. The religious leader mission, the good people mission is to educate and enlighten to what's the right way to do things, whatever that is, with the right standards, the right measurements, the right, right, right? And then once you identify and educate and enlighten to it, you maybe got to persuade, maybe you got to convince. And then the final goal, the goal you know you've met your mission is when they conform to it. Success. Jesus' mission is not to reform us. Jesus' mission is to redeem us. Rescue lost people. Justify unworthy people. Heal sick people accept the unacceptable. So most ministry will look like normal things that normal people do. What do normal people do? Well, they get together, they hang out. They talk over drink and food. And in that normal interaction, normal way of relating over drink and food, trust is built. Caring relationships are formed. Friendships are formed. That's real Christianity. No secret, no real high fluting technique, no program we're going to unleash with you know the PowerPoint and the whatever. You know what I want to tell you? I want to tell you, Redeemer should throw the best parties in Waco. That's what I want to tell you, and everyone's invited. Everyone, because that's what Jesus did. Mark's masterpiece of amazement is Jesus accepts the unacceptable. This is not the exception to his mission. This is his mission. Go do likewise. Amen.